You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. I would suggest you forge more character. Your guide on the side. Uh, it's these interruptions that are there to teach you the lessons we need to live. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. On BYU Radio. BYU Radio. You know, it's one thing to run through the headlines. It's another to have a clue what to do with it. Loved our last guest, um, uh, Brad Stotts, who was uh, the author of the article, The Remedy for Unproductive Busyness. And you know it. Uh, we've talked about it a lot on the show. Average attention span is dropping. We now have, I think, about an eight-second attention span, which is pathetic, and uh, especially knowing that a goldfish has a nine-second attention span. So we, we stay busy. We like to keep moving. We think with our wonderful technology that it is the key to making us so much more productive, except we're also a lot less present, right? And we talk about that a lot on the show. But one of the things that um, was brought up by Brad in his article is this this important lesson of, um, of how would you put it? I guess he called it reflection. It's learning, right? Learning shouldn't be like a, oh, yeah, we ought to do that. That's It's like we're all surprised that we're not learning. Have you ever been so busy, one of my favorite quotes, have you ever been so busy patching, uh, chasing the flies that you don't go patch the screen? We can chase flies forever, but we never seem to be patching the problems. We never seem to fix the problems. And we say, well, I can't. Hello, I'm chasing flies. And yet a little bit of time. And the research is even showing you don't need a lot of time, just a few minutes. 15 minutes a day, according to his study, could increase your productivity and your learning by 22%. I mean, that's amazing. What does 22% of a more productive employee get you? If your, if your employees could produce, be 20% more productive financially, that would change the game. What if you as a mom could figure out through a little reflective thinking, you could become 20% more effective as a mother or as a father? So we sit there and we feel like we're burning the candle at both ends, and we are. We are worn out. We don't have more time. And because you can't have more time, maybe what you need to do is we need to figure out a way to get more learning, get more information. So... There's a wonderful tool I learned a long time ago, and it's very basic, that you can use everywhere you go. After every situation, after every event, after every everything that's important to you, just go basically think of three things, okay? Continue, I call it, stop and start. What do I need to continue doing? So after um, I've had a meeting or a situation or even a show, we do... Uh, I do in my mind this idea of a post – I call it a post-mortem, uh, but that sounds horrible. Um, but it's actually an after-incident report. Police do it all the time. You know, um, The military, they do these types of uh, reviews um, after a, you know, a major situation like a Ferguson or a Baltimore. They ought to be doing uh, some learning, don't you think? And basically all I ask myself is, okay, after today's show, based on today's show, what do I need to continue doing from today's show? What worked today? What do I need to stop doing? And what do I need to start doing? Continue, 
stop, start. And it's a really interesting thing. You could do it. Now, wouldn't it have been great if you had done it for last summer? What should we continue doing that does that works really well during the summertime with our kids? What should we stop doing that we just shouldn't do? Don't ever do this again. And what should we make sure we start doing? If we had done that at the end of last summer, we could be implementing those changes in preparation for today. Now, you still might have an incredible memory, but are you going to take the time to do that for your children's summer? Continue, stop, start. And it's a, it's a, it's a powerful, powerful tool. We do it a lot, and, and I do it a lot with, um, with couples. I don't use the words continue, stop, start. But when they sit down, we teach a, a process called couples meetings where once a week for six weeks, these couples come in. They've already learned some communication skills, and they sit in a really safe environment where they can talk. And the first thing we identify is we just have them rate their relationship, rate your marriage on a scale from 1 to 10. Then we basically ask them what's working, which is the continue question. And they spend about 10 or 15 minutes making a list of everything this week that went really well. And they, they shore up what's good. And part of that is because every day there's something good happening. And as humans, if we would start identifying what's happening – we can, we can go from there. So these are couples that are struggling, and yet they can still spend 20 minutes once a week identifying what's working. Well, we talked really well that one night. Now, there may have been four other nights where they argued, but that one night we really communicated really effectively. What else worked that night? What else was different that night? Well, we actually helped each other with dinner, and we cleaned up together. Great. What else was working? And we just make a list of everything that's what's, that's working. That's what's continuing. What do we need to continue doing? And we build on a really good list. And, and what I suggest, too, is we keep identifying new things that are working this week that, weren't, that we didn't notice last week. So we can find as many good things as we can. Then we work on what do we need to stop doing. And that's where you could maybe make a list of some things that didn't go so well. Well, we did fight those other three nights. We could talk about right now those, those talks. And then you, we could talk about what do we need to start doing more of. So in these meetings, the couples work on what what worked. Then we spend about 45 minutes using communication skills to talk about what we need to stop doing. And we give them each a chance to communicate and understand what the other's saying. And then we spend at the very end of the meeting, by the way, the meeting's about an hour and a half. Now, you don't always have to take an hour and a half, but for couples that are in serious you know, turmoil, an hour and a half is pretty handy. <laughs> And then we talk about what do we need to start doing as a couple? What does that need to look like? And I have them actually process through four lights, I call them. I believe every human being has four unique gifts that are lights that are designed to teach us and help us to be better. One of those lights is called self-awareness. We have the ability to recognize what part of the problem we are in our marriage. And if you're self-aware, you can grow that light so that you can understand more clearly how you influence your partner, what you do, what you don't do. Now you got to be careful because sometimes that self-awareness, like, oh, I'm an idiot. I'm such a loser. That's not necessarily self-awareness. That's another, that's kind of self-pity. We don't want our self-awareness to take us into self-pity. We want our self-awareness to help us recognize that based on this conversation I'm having with my wife, 
I kind of need to pick my game up a little bit more in helping around the house. And we use our self-awareness as a light. Another light we use is, is, is empathy. What are my partner's needs and wants? And we have really a time to reflect on what, what is it my wife really needs based on what she's bringing up to me. Instead of fighting her about it, what is her deeper need here? What is she really struggling with? And then we explore that. And my empathy can understand her needs and her empathy could understand my needs. So now I'm aware of what part of the problem I am and I'm more aware of what my spouse needs. Then the next tool we use is vision. What do I want most here? And I have them go through the process of reflectively listening and thinking about their conversation and their marriage. Well, we both want this. It seems like based on our conversation, we want to not fight three days out of seven. It seems like we want more of those good days instead of the bad days. It seems like we want to be united. You get clear on what you do want. What is your vision for a healthier relationship or life? And you could go through these same questions. What part of my job am I? Part of the problem am I? What are the needs and wants of the people around me at my work? What do I want most as an employee of this organization? And then the very last question is always my favorite. And it actually prompts us to go and know what to do. The very last question I call the conscience question. And we let our conscience be our guide. Then I just say, Great. Based on this conversation, based on the lights that I've turned on, what's the most important thing I could do this week with my wife to go have the greatest positive impact? And I believe your conscience will be your guide and it will tell you what you need to do. And my conscience might tell me I need to help more around the house like I did on that one night when it went really well. And my wife might come up with a completely different thing. She needs to be more patient or more willing to invite me to help instead of hoping I help based on our conversation. And then we both walk away with a conscience-driven solution that came from my four lights. And then that becomes our homework assignment with each other. And we look at each other and we commit to working on those two challenges, those two things our conscience led us to. And then we go try it again for a week. And then when we come back, we reflect a week. That's what I call a couples meeting. Doesn't have to be a beat down, doesn't have to be angry. It's just a learning opportunity. And we can do it with our executives. We can do it with everybody. What part of the problem are you? What are the needs and wants of the people around you? What do you want? What's your vision of what you want most here? And what's the most important thing you could do right now or this week? That same process could be done every day just as you end your day. What part of today did I impact really positively? Where did some of my less you know, attractive traits slip, slip into the day? It's just reflection, folks. You know it. I know it. It's just so hard, isn't it? But don't make the argument for how hard it is because when you think about it, it's not. If you just got out of a business meeting, take a second in your car and just reflect Continue, stop, start. What should we continue based on that conversation? Write it down. What should we stop doing based on that conversation? Write it down. What should I start doing? Write it down. Oh, but I don't have anywhere to write it, and I don't want to carry a... Use your phone. Learning, folks. You're, you're wired to learn. And if we don't learn, then what on earth are we doing here? You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. You know, um, uh, I've been talking about these ideas of every one of us, in fact, 
we we have little myths, little lies. I don't know what else to call them. Things that we think have to be a certain way, and um, they're 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 lies that we tell ourselves that actually make it so we lose some self esteem, we lose some self worth. You know, like all one one of the ones that I've already talked about is natural gifts are the only real gift, right? So. If you don't do something naturally and you're not just naturally gifted at something, then it's then you obviously you're not as good as the one that actually has hard time learning math and then you work your way through it and then you figure it out. That's not as that's not as powerful in our world as just as the one that just naturally gets it, right? So we have that belief. Another belief is that we can't handle certain things. Another belief or a lie that we kind of tell ourselves is that some things are just black and white. Right? They're just black and white. And it's it's either it's A or B. It's good or bad. It's it's right or wrong, right? It's it's yes or no. It's up or down. It's it is what it is. It's just this black or white thing. And the irony about black or white is that it's all right in the eye of the beholder. And it also isn't it also determined isn't the judgment of whether something's right or wrong determined also in the depth of the understanding as to why the act took place. So isn't it true that the more you understand somebody, the more something doesn't necessarily become right or wrong? And isn't it also true that some actions are wrong, and yet the motive behind it wasn't as wrong? Or vice versa. And so I I like that. I mean, I'm a big believer, you know, God is black or white, right? Except, you know, um, God also has in-depth understanding of the motive and the intent and the heart and the experience of what somebody has gone through before they do what they do. And I'm assuming they're not going to be judged just on the letter of the law, but maybe the spirit of the law as well. Life is pretty paradoxical, really. It's I've noticed that in sometimes the hardest things that I go through also have a very easy component to them. Or sometimes things are fun, but they're also complicated. And sometimes being complicated makes things more fun. And other times comp- being, having something complicated makes things less fun. And I've noticed that sometimes people can be nice and simultaneously they can hurt you. And you can love them and not want to be with them all the time. So things aren't always black and white. And I I want us all to kind of know that because the minute you assume everything is black or white, then you might be setting yourself up for the fact that everything on earth has to be good or bad. And everything on earth has to be now or never, right? We kind of dichotomize and we make everything an either or when many times there is an and involved. You can do both. And you can love somebody deeply, and I don't need to be with you all the time. And that doesn't make it bad, right? So be careful of being too fixated on black or white thinking. Also, another one is everyone else has their um, has their act together. That is such an illusion, such a lie. When you look around, and as somebody that sits down with four or five people a day whose lives are really strained and they're having a difficult uh, time in their life— most people don't have their act together. Most people just are hanging on by a thread. Most of us, you know, can't put it all together physically, socially, emotionally, spiritually, intellectually. We just can't do it all. 
And so the illusion that everyone else is doing so much better than you is nothing more really than just an illusion. It's not real. It doesn't, it's not the way it looks. So someone might be the most incredible, you know, nicest person in the world and they can't do their taxes and they owe 10 grand in taxes and they give a ton to charity and they don't, you know, they don't do everything they can at church to be the best they can be. This can all exist. And they're still, but they still look like they're perfect. The reality is, is we, we don't need to compare. So one of the rules is just lose the comparison. You're not here to compare your game against everyone else's game. You're here to find your happiness, your sense of meaning, your sense of purpose. There's more to life than you know, pretending like we've got it all together. We just sometimes, and you'll notice when you're really drowning in it, you could care less if everyone else thinks something, right? You're just trying to be alive and and be you. And the last myth I want to blow up is this idea that sometimes we just believe we're really lucky. I'm just so lucky. Um, Some of us believe like there's no way in the world, it's called imposter syndrome, that we actually are not sure that we should – we're not good enough to deserve what we're getting in life. So we might just phrase our life and our great advancements in life as just pure luck. I mean, if you want to attribute it to something, attribute it to blessings and God if you want to attribute it to something. But don't just attribute it to some random thing of luck because the downside to being lucky is that if you're not lucky, then I guess you have no responsibility to do anything except just pray for luck, I guess. When uh, when you start to recognize that a lot of my life is because I work hard and I'm blessed from above. So count your blessings and work like a dog. That might be the best equation um, to explain your luck. You're not lucky. You're not an imposter to be so gifted and blessed. You've been blessed from on high and you've worked hard. And when you're blessed from on high and you work hard, things happen. And just as you could be lucky, tomorrow it could turn. And so let's still seek for further blessings from on high, and let's still try to uh, work our way through it, right? Maybe blow up the I'm lucky myth. Otherwise, you may be abdicating your responsibility a little bit, just hoping that some leprechaun thinks you're magically delicious. Ah, There's got to be another way. There's got to be another way. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. According to the World Health Organization, more women are affected by depression than men. This pattern is seen in countries around the world, including the United States. Cross-national and cross-cultural studies have indicated that the prevalence of depression among women is higher at any given time than among men. This pattern does not seem um, to have many exceptions. However, research is also shedding light into the fact that men might be more vulnerable to depression caused by stressful events. Here to to, uh, walk us through some of this research is Dr. Shervin Asarin, um, uh, Asari, sorry, and she is a research investigator of psychiatry and public health at the University of Michigan Ann Arbor, and we appreciate you being here, Dr. Asari. Thank you so much. Hi, Matt. Thank you for having me. 
this is an important, I think, um, lesson, I think, for all of us. Because I see depression with a lot of the clients that I that I work with. And um, a lot of times in men, it, it is. It's the loss of a job. It's the loss of, you know, maybe the ability to perform the job like they used to. And they fall into this depression. And I, I, a lot of I, I found a lot of us don't even maybe equate men to depression. But what I guess you're finding in your research is stress impacts depression for men. Yeah, the contribution of stress uh, for, as a cause of depression is bigger for men compared to women. And the reason is because uh, men get fewer stress compared to women. Mm. So if you compare, uh, more men are employed. Men get higher uh, pay. Men don't get pregnant. M- men don't uh, get the, that consequence of divorce. Those kinds of things, so as a general and, and a premenstrual cycle, those physiological uh, things happening to women. So as a general rule, men are less frequently exposed to stress. So they don't get the experience dealing with it. Oh, yeah. So so it's really kind of situational. Because we don't have the experience, we don't get the practice having to deal with it. Um, is that does does the chemistry is I'm assuming the chemistry is different too between a male and a female. Do our female bodies uh, do they produce different chemistry that create the ability to manage it differently, or is it just more psychological? Some of it is um, biologic, but my attention is on the social part. It's interesting that they uh, they have done the same type of studies in animals with have hierarchies and they have seen that the highest level of damage due to stress in causing heart disease, depression, those kinds of things is for alpha males. So it might be testosterone, it might be, but but in my work it is mostly about expectations, what you expect from your situation in life and Mm. your practice and your coping. Interesting. So um, uh, the men that are most likely to become depressed uh, because of stress are those that would ex- that that weren't expecting it, maybe that didn't see this potential, you know, collapse in their life um, or their hierarchy. It's uh, it, it, a lot of this then has to do with just as an alpha male, perhaps they they haven't experienced it and they've never learned to practice their way through it. Yes, uh, this, this uh, research that you are referring comes from two independent studies that I published. One was using a cross-sectional, means a snapshot, of a health status of uh, American people in 2003. That was one study. I published it uh, last year. The second one was I uh, looked at the data again nationally representative data of more than 4,000 individuals who were followed from 1986 to 2011, and they had seen who got exposed to stress and who becomes depressed. In both of the studies, either it is a cross-section or it is a very long-term follow-up. It's men, and in one of the studies I found it is mostly white men who get least frequent stress in their life, who 
they, that doesn't mean they are more depressed. That means if stress happens for them, they are at most risk of depression. Hmm. If it happens, they are the ones at most risk to to suffer. So if the stress happens, they're at most risk to suffer the depression. Absolutely. Okay. And it is not just for suffering depression. They are the group who gets a gun and kill themselves. Mm, they take it to that extreme. Yes, exactly. Mm. Talk to us about how we how we respond differently. Um, how how do these men? I mean, I guess they they take action in a very negative way if they, if it leads to suicide. But how do men handle depression differently than women? In in a way, it seems like men don't have. It's we're not you know we don't talk as much maybe when we're stressed and we don't communicate it and we don't share it. You are absolutely right. The first thing is we are not that aware of not only our emotions, our body, even the perception of pain, even so, so any perception of risk. You know, if someone want to cross. Uh, traffic light just passing it without paying attention we don't we don't see the risk as much as women so this is the main thing the first thing and it is irrespective of the domain in all areas women are more risk avert and risk oriented so the first thing so is the awareness about our physical uh, experiences and emotional experiences. So we don't feel it, really. Hmm. And we don't get to our recognition that, okay, there is a problem. So that's the first thing. Then, yeah, we don't even, if we feel it, we don't seek support, even before going to a doctor, just we don't reach to our friends, as women do, and talk about our feelings and our pains. We don't do that. Just we keep it inside, and we want to keep being looking strong. Those kinds of um, uh, we stigmatize it. We we don't feel that we are safe if we go and we talk about our pain, and then we don't take our emotions to a professional, including a doctor or a psychologist. And it is interesting, even when we are sitting with a doctor and we have the opportunity, mm. even in that case, we don't talk about our emotion, even if we are sad. So it is in all levels, there, there are different levels of barriers. It's very systematic. Mm. That is... That's sad, right? Because, but we then quietly stuff it, and when we can't take it anymore, we're more inclined to go act it out or act on it and uh, do something more extreme. Is this is this a reality globally of men, or is this situational to the United States? How, how does that play out? You know, by reducing the traditional hegemonic masculinity ideologies, like we are, we are all these countries are transitioning from more traditional beliefs to more modernized type of way of thinking. So by the, the America today is much better and is much more open to the concept of depression as a health problem, not as a type of weakness. Hmm. So we, the, the, our parents were worse than us. Yeah. yeah. So it's getting better. <laughs> yeah, it's, there's hope. And how is it in comparison to other countries? 
again, more traditional countries worse. Worse. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess because so, so some of this is just the socialization of a man. Be strong. And I guess it's global. It's universal. Be strong. Show no weakness. Um, you know, maintain your position. Act as if it's not bothering you. Absolutely. And all gender differences are uh, smaller in countries like United States. When I say the pay in gap it's much more traveling in Africa. So it is, but it still is there. When I say men get fewer stress, it's worth that the, the gap in exposure to stress is smaller, but still exists huh. in here. Yeah. And I think that's a, yeah, that's, that's an important point too. Just, I mean, overall women suffer more depression, but men, when we have stress, we are more vulnerable to the effects of stress and depression. Exactly. And um, I guess in the end, what, what changes do you see that, that, or what impact does that have on our job, our families, our lives? Yeah, this is, the, you know, the family should be aware, in, in my understanding, should be aware of the fact about men that we don't talk, we don't seek help, we don't even have that awareness about our problems uh, from pain to psychological uh, distress, those kinds of things. Mm. This, is, this is if, if media works on it, if family is aware of this gender or sex difference, if my partner is aware of that, then the way they would try to help us in, in general, also personally, would be very different. Yeah. Wow. That is, um, that, that's important because if, if the man might not have the awareness historically to just recognize it, let alone seek to talk about it, instead we stuff it and we don't go get the help, then we might need our family members that are close to us to to notice it, help us recognize it, push us a little bit more to, to bring it out. Yeah, you know, social support has different types. One is emotional social support. The fact that I can talk to a friend just drinking a tea with him or have a drink and just say, I don't feel that good. I, I have a problem in my life. This is how I feel. This has a huge impact, protective mm. impact. And if men better learn or work on the skill to do it, that would be a huge help to them. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Let's take a break. Um, again, we are speaking with Shervin Asari, who is um, a, a professor, an investigator, a researcher of psychiatry and public health at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. And he received his postdoctoral training in racial and ethnic health disparities Um, He's got a lot to teach us about depression and the impact stress has on men, particularly when it comes to depression. Stick with us. We're going to help you live longer and love stronger. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, on the phone with us is Dr. Shervin Asari. 
He is um, a, uh, a researcher, investigator of psychiatry and public health at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. And he's talking to us about some studies that he's performed um, that, that point out the fact that even though women may be more inclined to suffer depression, men are more inclined to be impacted by stress and have that stress drive them to depression um, and then even more likely to you know, act on it in maybe an unhealthier way. Um, joining us again, Dr. Asari, thank you so much for, for walking us through your research. Oh, of course. My pleasure. Is it, um, give us some ideas, some tools. What are things that we can do as just general, you know, as a man that feels stress to not fall into that depression loop? You know, I maybe I can say before stress happening and after stress happening. So for before stress happening, we need to learn how to better cope, to reduce the stigma, mm. the idea that depression or any mental health problem is not a weakness. It's like just flu or other problems has medicine and would go away. So a general working on our general beliefs and ideologies. Then uh, maybe uh, working on our relations with other men that we can feel better to talk about our emotions, those kinds of stuff. Hmm. This is before stress happening. Yeah. And when stress happens, to be aware that we are at most risk and we are more likely to get the damage of that stress. So we, we are type of vulnerable and this is by design, um, reaching to families, reaching to friends for even emotional support, not necessarily and not just exclusively professional support, just talking about it. Mm. And then it becomes to our families and friends and wives and partners to help us to reach and get professional support. Mm. Many times um, when I'll have a client and I see that they're depressed, I'll ask, do you, do you feel depressed? Do you feel a, a sense of depression? And I, I've noticed that sometimes, many times, they're, it's almost just so not safe for them to say that they are depressed um, that I think, oh, that's so, that, that's so sad. Everything they're showing and manifesting tells us there's something going on, and yet it's still not safe as a as a society like you were talking about. There's still the stigma there. What can we do better as um, as just coworkers, friends, family to to lower the stigma of mental health issues and, and show that it's not a weakness? Yeah, to me, it's more a job of media public media, TV, radio, what you are doing right now is awesome, is just trying to reduce the stigma. These type of uh, higher level interventions are needed by media, uh, public, weblogs, Facebook, those kinds of things. Mm. This is one side of it. And then the being aware of that, what is happening with our friends? What is happening? Is he... Mm, more introvert these days just is there anything wrong and can I go forward and just offer a conversation or just a walk 
to have a conversation. So I divide it to higher level interventions by public uh, media, what, as I said, TV shows, uh, newspapers, magazines, you, what you are doing, covering. Mm. And then the other thing is just being aware that maybe something may go wrong and may just, just men may act crazy. May, may get a gun and shoot themselves. So be, be really uh, cognizant and aware of this. Fact. Mm. Does, uh, I guess, too, maybe there's other things we can do uh, to create or offer support, like at these transition points. I can imagine if a company's laying someone off, you know, um, maybe or terminating somebody, it might be a good idea to offer counseling as an exit package. And or you know if if there are events that are creating stress the loss of a family member um it, it might be really important to make sure that doctors and medical professionals are are maybe anticipating and looking more at depression oh exactly policies even state level policies like when transition to unemployment or retirement when an economic crisis is happening and men are being affected, bankrupt, or those kinds of things, policies that would mm, be supporting or work as a buffer for them, yeah, definitely mm. that higher level policies are extremely important. We, in fact, it's interesting. We don't, we don't think about it, but retirement's a big deal because it does add a lot of stress to your life, even if financially you're okay you don't have your identity, right? You're not the guy that goes to the office. You are not the, now you're home and your wife is stressed because you're always home. There's a lot of stress just around that stage. Yeah, negative interactions in home goes up after retirement and then the self-worth or the self-efficacy goes down. Oh, absolutely. And health problems happen. You know, the impact of the, the getting a diagnosis of cancer to making a decision of getting a gun and kill themselves is huge for white men who used to live a happy life. When they get a diagnosis of cancer, they may not act properly. So exactly when we get to the mm, post-retirement type of time of our life, these type of policies become extremely important. Yeah. And I guess the key is, like you keep bringing up, is because there's a pre and a post, right? And pre, there's a lot of stuff we could be doing, should be doing pre-stressors um, that will set us up. Uh, and then there's all the stuff we can do post. It seems like many times in our world, we spend so much time on the post that we, we, don't, we don't prevent some of this. But um, maybe this is something we can teach as a policy in our schools, but teach our kids stress management better, teach them anger management and emotion management. Absolutely. You know, everything, it's not just for depression due to stress. Right. Everything has primary, secondary, and tertiary preventive strategies. Primary prevention for this is, yeah, lifestyle, life skills, coping skills. Secondary is go uh, take care of yourself. And then tertiary is when you have depression, get the medicine. Mm. Yeah. And and again, it doesn't. It's not a life sentence. It, a lot of it would be situational. It sounds like situational stress, situational depression. That you could, you're not going to be on the meds permanently. Oh, 
absolutely. You definitely six months, four months of depression, and then you would come back to life at mo- at worst. Mm. Exactly. And deal, and I guess dealing with it effectively um, on all three of those levels of intervention would 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 shorten the the the. Um, Shorten the depression. It would shorten the the rotation, which would get you back on your feet and probably mitigate the stress. Exactly. Depression causes heart disease. Depression causes a stroke. We know that. So if a person gets, especially among men, if a person gets depressed and does, just doesn't care, that means he's helping himself get a stroke in future. Wow. That's a... Uh, it's important, important stuff. Well, we appreciate you. Dr. Asari, thank you so much for your time, for being with us and giving us this insight on uh, how to handle the stress and the depression. Folks, you can't – don't mess around. Don't mess around with it. Um, guys, we need to pick up our game, get some tools, some information of about depression, but also I think information – how to how to manage emotion how to allow emotion to be a bigger part of our lives i think many of the women in our world would would love to see that uh, we want to pick up that game and some of that's just emotional intelligence we just got to study learn listen pay attention we'll take a break come back this is the matt townsend show stick with us we'll be right back Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Welcome to my house, folks. Um, you know, boy, depression, it was, it was just chilling, I think, to have Dr. Asari talk about how when men get stressed, they're, more li- they're less likely to recognize it. It's more likely to lead to depression, and they're more likely to go act on it with a suicidal thought or a suicidal tendency and um, or act. And, you know, that's it's it's something really important when it comes to any of us. When we hear a man mentioning those thoughts, you have to take it seriously. You have to say something. You have to do something because men don't usually do it or say it for attention. They usually, if they, if they say it, they're they're probably meaning it, and that's a that's a big it's a big deal. Um, so pay attention if you hear that from someone you love. I know it's scary, and I know it's quite the downer to talk about, but you got to take it seriously. Emotional intelligence, remember though, is it's it's a lot of things. Emotional intelligence is being able to recognize and be aware of your own emotion. It's also the ability to uh, involve other people into your emotion. So it takes emotional intelligence to go share your emotional issues with someone else. It takes emotional intelligence to recognize you're having depression or frustration or that you're down. It also takes emotional intelligence to manage some of the emotion. You know, to a lot of us might feel the need to yell and to be angry and want to lash out. But to be emotionally intelligent means even though we feel that need, we don't. We don't do it. It also means I have the ability to recognize the emotion in others. I can see that others are suffering. So, guys, don't think that you're the only ones that don't have emotional intelligence. Some people around you don't even notice it. It's it's something we have to do, I think, as an entire country 
and maybe on the heels of this election, it's a it's a good topic to talk about. We we probably need to quit taking our anger and our frustration out. We need to probably st- quit labeling everybody because we 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 have to heal, and healing is going to probably demand that we all do something a little different, right? That we be different. Um, that we actually expect uh, to to have a higher game now. It's it's big boy time. This is how you be a grown. This is how you have to act as a grown up. Um, some other keys as I think about emotional intelligence. Just in it, it, the research shows clearly it is something you can learn. So if you don't feel like you do a very good job with emotional intelligence, if you feel like you don't understand it, you can learn it which is, I think, great news, right? Because now you're not set to just have to be, you know, clueless emotionally. Guys, you can learn it. And there are some that are really gifted in it and understand how to do it. If you're a salesperson and you just know how to read another person, you probably have some of this emotional intelligence. Use it. And maybe one thing we could do is try to be more open to helping other men, other people in our lives open up as well. What if we kind of lost a little bit of the machismo, the backslapping to one another, and instead, actually, when we saw somebody was suffering, what if we brought it up? And you'll find a way to do it effectively. It doesn't mean you have to sit there and hug and cry with each other, but you might. It might just simply be you call your friend down the street that's been unemployed forever and is, you know, is in a funk and you take the guy out to lunch. You just connect human to human. That's maybe all it is. You don't need to talk him out of it, but it might be pretty powerful if you can get him talking. And one way to do that is just point out the change. I've noticed you've you've been more quiet since, you know, you lost your job. Tell me. Tell me what you're feeling. Tell me what you're going through. It'll be pretty powerful. It's something that they they would probably want to share if it was safe enough. And if you can be that safe guy, then you become you become you almost become a healer, right? You're the healer for this person. Which is exactly what this world needs. More healers, less dividers. So, I challenge you. Go out there Think of someone right now that you know is suffering, struggling. They're down. They're depressed. Ask yourself, what can you do today to make a difference in that life? And just go do it. Whatever comes to your heart, whatever comes to your mind, go do that. Just that one thing. And you'll be amazed what happens next. That's where the miracles come. Just when we listen to our conscience, our essence. Anyway, we're going to heal. We'll heal. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. Stick with us, helping you live longer, love stronger, lead healthier, happier lives. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, it's, It's these interruptions that are there to teach you the lessons we need to live. Your guide on the side. What creates higher trust for you and the people around you? This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Conflict in your life. How do you handle it? 
Are you one that uh, that can actually sit back as our last guest was talking to us about and uh, and allow the difference of opinion in? Can you suspend your need to react? Right? Can you attend to what they're saying and remain influenceable, remain open to what another person is saying? Do you listen? Do you actually listen to what they are saying? And uh, on top of all of it, do you also voice? I mean, a lot of people could sit and listen and be, you know, quiet and passive, and, but do you also voice your opinion as well? Do you, have a, do you have the ability to take what they've said and bridge your opinion into theirs? I call it build onto their opinion, because what I believe is when we listen to people really attentively, 80% of what they are saying, you will probably agree with. So as as a mediator, I would sit down with couples fighting about the biggest issues of their marriage, and they're they're in a pretty intense argument. And as we start to kind of you know slice down the argument into its its more finite points, what you will find out find out when you get to the more finite points, we have about eighty percent agreement. There's a lot of stuff we agree on in the argument, but we spend about 100% of our time where we disagree. So do you have the ability to suspend and to make sure that you're not reacting to uh, your emotion inside, this fight or flight kicking in in your heart and in your mind that's making your heart race and uh, you want to stop them from saying what they're saying? Because if I can just stop you from saying it, I guess that would make it not happen. Or that would make you not think that way. But wouldn't it make more sense to allow some of these ideas out into the dialogue, especially if it's somebody I love and care about and want to influence, wouldn't it make more sense to actually understand where they're coming from? Right? So that I can understand why they're thinking this way, why they're doing what they're doing, why they're, you know, making or taking this position about something that I hold near and dear to my heart. There is, there's power, folks, in this ability to do it. And I, the funny thing is we expect our, our leaders to be able to do it politically, and yet I believe most of us can't do it privately. Most of us struggle to do that personally. Over and over, in fact, tonight as well, I will sit in a room tonight with probably 10 to 12 people, six couples who really have a hard time talking with each other. And and we, we've trained them, we've taught them the skills, and tonight they come and they just practice it. And as they practice it, it is amazing how, how hard it is to actually, you know, hold back those horses that want to just run with this issue and stop their partner from saying what they feel or what they think. And or in misinterpreting it and taking it to the worst possible level I could take it. Those are unique skills, right? Notice I've talked about suspending, attending listening, voicing, all very important points, building onto what people are saying, all important communication skills. Do you possess them? Because if you don't, can I just challenge you to go start learning how to do it? You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. We talk about positive mental attitude. We talk about having an open mind and uh, and how those things make a difference. One of the things I think that makes the biggest difference is it's not going to be um, a cliche. It's And there's a ton of research behind all of this stuff. 
But the real reason I like being more positive is because I just feel better. Now, some people are like, well, yeah, but sure, you're going to be taken advantage of more. Hey, bring it on. (laughs) Whatever. If you're going to try to take advantage of me because I'm positive, fine. Because when you do, guess what I'll say? Oh, well, you know, did what I could. And I'll just move on faster by having a little bit uh, more optimism in me, a little bit uh, more positive mental attitude. I'm not saying I should stick my head in the sand and pretend like there aren't any facts in this world because there are. But I also don't think I need to to just be negative. It's never served me. Um, I sit with people every day in my coaching practice that – really are just negative. And it's it, remember, the negativity, I wouldn't argue it's a strength because we, we already know some data in, in the Happiness Advantage, uh, a book that's out talking about the, the power of happiness, um, is one of the data points shows that the most, the most um, likely group of, of professionals that are most likely to uh, go commit suicide and are the most miserable would be attorneys – and it's not because they're bad people. It's because their profession demands that they always look for the negative. So if you set your life up to constantly be gauging and trying to look for the negative, you will find an uglier life. Positivity is more about um, being able to see the the rainbow, right? Being able to see the emergent property that comes out of the differences between tension and light. And our lives are all going to be filled with some form of tension, some, some kind of uh, dark side and some positive side, some light side. And somewhere out of that comes a new reality. They call it an emergent property, right? It's something that didn't exist before. But sometimes you need the clouds and you need the storm and, then you, and you need the rain and you need the sun. And when the three can combine, all this tension combines with light, it creates something that didn't exist before. But that light can't come if you don't let it in. If you're not looking for the rainbow, if you're not looking for the opportunity on the other side of the pain, then um, it can be there. How many times have you driven down the road with rainbow up there and you're not even noticing it? And some of us notice it and we're like, eh, well, it's not. It's, only, it's really only two hues. Hmm. Okay, I mean, it's nice, but whatever. We're actually like, we're not in awe of the fact that there is a rainbow. Yeah, it's just a rainbow. No, that means there's no more floods or whatever. So think about it. How effective are you at uh, not just protecting yourself from your cynicism? How effective are you at actually intentionally letting the light in? Everybody, we want, I know, we don't want to be hurt. So it's very natural for us to to not want to be hurt so badly that we just can't find the joy. But man, what happens to us as human beings if we could actually search out the joy? And everybody, every one of us today, just today, don't, don't do anything else, but just today, go try to find three blessings today. Three signs that God is good, that life is good. Just find them. Look for them. And then every day, just maybe try again tomorrow. Let's try, try, try to find three more. And then what's really fun is share those. Share those three joys, those three blessings 
share those and, and then just see what happens. A lot of us just don't dare reveal who we are because we're – I guess we're afraid that they'll reject me. They'll, they'll af- we're afraid that if they actually knew who I was, they wouldn't want me. They wouldn't like me. And so it creates bigger problems for us. We, we've been talking about on the show uh, with the earlier guest about the impact of our exercise, and it's just a little tiny thing. You just need a little activity to start to make those chemicals flow. The same is true in our lives, in our relationships. If we could just be a little bit more vulnerable, a little bit more real about what's going on, man, a lot of good stuff could could um, could be improved in our lives. One rule is simply be wholehearted. Uh, Brene Brown, a great uh, speaker and author, researcher on on vulnerability, talks about the fact that many of us just really aren't really – we're not wholehearted. We're not wholly in our relationships. We're not even wholly in our job. We're not fully in. And if you're not fully in, you can't derive any benefits of life. If you're not all the way in, then you're you're only getting half as good as, as you could be at something. You're only offering half your talent, half – of your love, half of your understanding. And so how hearted are you is the question I ask. When we talk about being a wholehearted person, and if you thought about your marriage, how wholehearted are you giving in your marriage? How wholeheartedly are you present in your marriage? Um, And Brene Brown has a great quote that says, we spend an enormous energy trying to dodge vulnerability when it would take far less effort to face it straight on. Are you so busy fighting and flighting in your relationships? Are you so uh, up and down? Are you so constantly wondering if you're going to be able to make it through this crazy difficult thing that that by being so constantly in and out and up and down and trying to avoid being hurt, are you actually just creating more pain and problems for yourself? So one of the suggestions might be burn your ships um, Cortez, I guess the the story goes when he came uh, to conquer and he arrived to conquer. He one of the, the things that he decided to do was to supposedly burn his ships and make it so the soldiers or his people, when they went off to fight, they weren't allowed to uh, ever come back to the ships because the ships would need to be rebuilt. Many would argue they probably didn't burn them, but he just made them unusable. <laughs> To uh, So it would take a lot of work to actually ever use the ship again. But how are you in your relationships? Have you made it so that you aren't constantly reverting back to the idea that, hey, I'm just going to – I can always leave? Um, one of the signs of a, a relationship that's really gone sideways is we start to uh, you know search alternatives. We start to think about what we would do. Uh, or we start to look at other people. We start to look at other things. We start to, you know, offload our attention and our focus to something else, to some other hobby or something else that actually starts to take the place of our relationship. So think about that. How are you at uh, being fully in in your relationship? And throughout this week, I'm going to continue to do little coaches' corners on other things we can do to make sure that we are connecting, to make sure that we are more wholeheartedly in our relationship, because that is one of the key goals of this show, is to help all of us be be the good in the world. And if we can, lift our game up uh, quite a bit in our relationships those in those people that are closest to us. So we'll continue the journey on the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. 
Has your child come home complaining that school is boring? Maybe they're not being challenged, or maybe the teacher is covering subjects that they've already mastered. The American school system puts students in grades based on age. However, for some students, being the same uh, at the same age with the peers in their classrooms might not be the best option. Here to discuss her work as an expert in academic acceleration is Dr. Susan Asseline, and uh, we appreciate you so much being with us. This is, I, I think... We see more and more, it seems like, children being kind of advanced, also even some being held back for sports. So uh, we wanted to pick your brain on this. Dr. Asseline, thanks for being with us. Well, thank you for inviting me. This, what do you think? Is I mean, you've done a lot of research on this. Do we see more of this happening, of, of kids being um, um, skipping grades to move forward academically? Well, uh, we know that there is a phenomenal amount of research that has taken place over the past 60 or 70 years that really emphasizes that the intervention of academic acceleration for students who are ready for it, uh, that means that they have the cognitive power to handle that, that um, they benefit tremendously. They benefit at that moment because they are more challenged and they're engaged in their learning, but those benefits stay with them throughout their academic career and into their professional lives, throughout their lives. So the well-being for these students is enhanced. And and there are many reasons for that, but one of the main reasons is that they're actively engaged in learning. So that's really critical. In 2004, we put out uh, what would be considered a watershed report because of this disparity between what we know in terms of the research telling us about an intervention being highly successful and the lack of practice in schools. And there are many reasons for this, many myths. Um, And so we put out this watershed report called A Nation Deceived, and uh, we received a lot of of really just tremendous praise and also support for this report because it really addressed this issue. A couple, about a year and a half ago, then we put out an update to this. So going from a nation deceived to being informed and now a nation empowered. And so to get to the answer to your question, do we see more of this? Yes. Since the publication of a nation deceived, we do see more of this. However, there are still huge numbers of students who are ready for this, who are not being given the opportunity to consider academic acceleration in one of its 20 forms. Mm. I mean, the one size fits all, the one age is uniform to all, it doesn't apply. And um, does I, I guess, though, you're, you're bringing up the point that they, they need to be gifted, right? They need to be advanced um, and skilled or, or skipping a grade could be detrimental? Absolutely, and we have the tools for this. So we've had a tool for a 100 years known as an intelligence test, and it occurs in a variety of forms. You can have individualized intelligence tests, which are really the best, but there are also some superb group-administered tests like the cognitive abilities test. And those tests are really useful because they give you important information about the, the pace that a student is ready for. So a student who's accelerated is ready for a faster pace. The typical student, I mean, let, let's, uh, let me be clear. What happens in schools today in general for the typical student is amazing 
teachers are amazing. They have to do so much. So for the typical student, the typical curriculum is really fantastic. But for the percentage of students who need curriculum that is more advanced and presented at a faster pace, uh, they are not going to normally get that in the typical classroom unless you just have the most amazing teacher Mm. in the world. Um, So we need to use tools that will help us figure out who's ready for more advanced curriculum at a faster pace. And we have lots of tools right at our fingertips. I like to say we don't need to just cross our fingers and hope that we're making a good decision. We've got tools right at our fingertips. What percentage of children um, would benefit from acceleration? Well, um, there are 20 different forms of acceleration. So um, when a lot of people talk about uh, and uh, you know they talk about grade skipping, for example, that's a whole grade acceleration. There's just one form. Uh, I mean, that's just one of the 20 forms, but it is the one that most people tend to be most familiar with. How many kids would benefit from that? It really depends on the local school system and the opportunities that are available. Hmm. Um, So I'm going to hedge that a little bit because I don't want people running to their district saying, (laughs) Dr. Asseline said that 5% of the kids should benefit from this and we only accelerate, you know, one-tenth of 1%. That's that's not what I want, but I want people to know that there are options out there. And the majority of students are going to benefit from, the majority of highly capable students are going to benefit from, as a minimum, some type of acceleration in particular content areas. If you have enough of those content areas that they're benefiting from, then they're probably ready to move on to the next grade. Mm. Talk about, you brought up that there's like 20 forms of gifted. Give us some insight into some of those. 20 forms of acceleration. Of acceleration, yeah. The the number of forms of gifted, that's huge out there. Um, There isn't really a strong federal definition for gifted education. There's a national organization, and there are broad ways of thinking about it, but there is no federal definition, and there's extremely limited federal funding. So... um, I gave you the example of whole grade acceleration. Uh, It is not uncommon now. It's not used widely enough, but it is not uncommon for students to be accelerated in the area of mathematics. That is something that many districts are taking a very concerted effort to find those students who are ready for more challenge in math so that they can have uh, algebra at the very least by eighth grade because algebra, math is a huge gatekeeper and it's actually one of the ways if you can make algebra accessible to students in seventh or eighth grade who are ready for it, it's one way of really leveling the playing field Mm. for those students who don't have access to it compared to those students who live in much larger districts who do have access to it. And and that playing field needs to get leveled early on or these students start out at a disadvantage and then that disadvantage is just, it accumulates over their high school and college years um, and results in not only lower achievement but also lower aspirations. Mm. So um, that's really important. Advanced placement is another form of acceleration that can be applied to whole groups of students. And uh, what is advanced placement? Well, it's first-year college-level content that has been developed by the College Board, which is, you know, an extraordinarily well-respected organization. And there's a huge... uh, 
there's a huge mechanism in place that supports advanced placement coursework and the advanced placement tests. And uh, everybody knows what that means. A student who earns a certain score on an advanced placement test, everybody knows exactly what that means. So putting college coursework into high schools is is another way of making acceleration available. Now, of course, you don't get ready for college coursework in high school once you're in 10th or 11th grade. That has to happen well before, which is why I'm, you know, talking about what we need to do in terms of upper elementary, middle school grades. Mm. So those are just a couple yeah. of the forms. And it's funny because those are some that many people, you know, kind of know are out there. I mean, I, uh, I, I guess what – so if I saw my child excelling and, and accelerating – and some of this it seems like too would be – Parents that are that are also maybe successful or 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 kind of naturally gifted and skilled maybe maybe they help recognize it earlier. Do teachers help recognize this? Should the parents be pushing it? Who who who's I guess who is responsible in the end to to, to notice the the need to to accelerate the child? Well, it's a team, and as with any good team, sometimes you have people who are going to take the lead and others who will who will be part of that, and so it can go back and forth, and again, it really depends on the particular child and the district. So districts who have been proactive and have made sure that their educators have been informed about the variety of options that are available for highly capable students, it may well be that the teacher is the one who's leading that team and talking to parents about ways to make sure that their child is academically challenged, which is great. You know, that's really great when it comes from the teacher. But you will have situations where there are parents who are hearing when their child comes home from school, you know, what you do today? I'm I'm so frustrated. I'm just bored to tears. Mm. Well, then that parent is going to hopefully move forward and ask the teacher for ways that they can work together to find a way to keep the child the child systematically challenged. And you know, the there there's really just you can give it any name you want, but bottom line is you're going, if you're giving them advanced material at an age that's younger than typical, you're providing them with academic acceleration. Hmm. And is it um, – it seems like some parents might be afraid of the impact of moving the child, you know. I mean, I, I guess skipping one grade is one thing, but even skipping two grades is could be common. Talk about your research and what you found about the actual impact. I, I always worry about it socially, whether you, do, whether you hold them back or you move them forward. Socially, they need to develop. But your research is pretty clear that it's positive. Right, and um, thank you for asking such perceptive questions because the questions are really good. It makes it easy for me to answer them. Uh, The social-emotional concerns that we should all be having about our children's development are absolutely, totally legitimate. And it is, I think, uh, one of the myths that people have is that if you're good and you need to be accelerated, you need to be really careful because that may have a negative social impact on you. The the, research research that has been done is really unequivocal in terms of the fact that it not only benefits them psychologically, but also social emotionally. Mm. Now, that being said, it, uh, they're, they're not huge benefits, but they're not detrimental. And um, the fact that they're being challenged sometimes relieves 
relieve some of the anxiety that they're feeling and, and lack of disengagement. Now, I want to have a caveat to this. If a student is struggling in terms of behavior or social-emotional issues, have them addressed. But don't expect that holding them back is going to fix that. Mm. Yeah. So have them addressed. D- deal with the deal with the real issues. Don't use right. acceleration or holding back as a way to deal with the issue. Exactly. exactly. Ah, interesting. We joke about it in terms of um, you know height, for example. Uh, some of us, I happen to be vertically challenged. <laughs> you know, I, I would love to have a couple more inches on me, but I'm I'm pretty comfortable with where I am. But if I had been held back because of my height, I would still be in fifth grade. <laughs> True. I mean, that's the that's why we can't go by just some standard. Every child needs to be known, understood, and figured out individually, right? Right, and we have the tools to do that. Today, in this day and age, with technology, with the training that our teachers are able to get, with uh, opportunities for additional training through webinars, through radio shows and hosts who know how to ask the right kinds of questions, uh, and through material that are out there. Can I give a plug for yeah. Nation Empowered? You bet. For a, a Nation Empowered evidence trumps the excuses holding back America's brightest students. You can get We have access uh, to the kind of information that can inform us and allow us to have our nation's brightest students move ahead. Do you see um, do you see a difference in it seems like we live in a day and age where we're trying to get the advantage, the best advantage we can for our children. And in the sports world, I see a lot of parents that are probably overly involved um, trying to live vicariously through their child, giving them the best advantage. And interestingly, in sports, a lot of times you may want your kid to, to hold back a year. If they're not developed physically enough, hold them back a year. It gives them advantages sometimes. Um, that, that's what I see parents arguing. But do it seems like intellectually, mentally accelerating a child, some of it might also be a parent that just is pushing could be. Uh, certainly that would be a concern that any astute teacher would want to really pay close attention to. Yeah. But I'm going to go back to what I said earlier is, you know, we have the mechanism to determine what students are ready for. Uh, we developed at the Bell and Blank Center a tool called the Iowa, well, that's because the Bell and Blank Center is at the University of Iowa in the state of Iowa, uh, called the Iowa Acceleration Scale, which is uh, a tool to guide educators and parents, a team, uh, to making the right decision about their students. And that tool includes the information about their general ability, their aptitude in specific content areas, and what have they already achieved. So you wouldn't put forth uh, a recommendation that a student would be a good candidate for academic acceleration if they hadn't already achieved and if Hmm. you didn't have evidence that they were also going to be, that they would continue to perform academically at an excellent level. I mean, look look at what scouts are looking at in terms of students for for athletics. You know, you, you don't you rely on the people who are experts in that area to reach down and try to figure out who's ready, who has the potential to succeed excellently in whatever domain we're talking about. Yeah. And, you, and, and there, are, there are safeguards. It's principals. It's, uh, it's, it's, other, it's academics. It's your teachers. It's the parents. 
Um, I think that's great. We'll take a break. More when we come back with Dr. Susan Asseline about uh, should your child skip grades if they're gifted? Uh, so far, the research shows it, it seems to be a pretty positive thing. We'll come back, find out uh, more about how you how you go about doing it and um, some watch outs that you might want to pay attention to if you're thinking your children might be at that stage. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you become the best, see the best in the world. We'll be back. friends to the Matt Townsend show. Do you have a gifted child? I mean, a lot of parents think their kids are gifted, but uh, as we're learning from our guest today, Dr. Susan Asseline, at some point you, they got to show the signs, right? They, there's got to be real data that we use to, to know that it's time to accelerate and uh, maybe have them skip a grade. Um, Dr. Susan G. Asseline is the director of the University of Iowa Bellin Blank Center for Gifted Education and Talent Development. She earned her Ph.D. in education at the University of Iowa and is currently a professor of psychology there. And uh, we welcome you back, Dr. Asseline. Thanks for your insight. Thank you for inviting me. When we think about this, um, is does homeschooling impact this? I mean, I know a lot of people that their children are gifted, and so they've basically decided to homeschool and th- with the idea that they'll accelerate them themselves and then get them you know, into college earlier. It, does it matter if you, if you then take them home to school them versus sending them to schools to accelerate them? Well, the homeschool movement is actually uh, obviously a growing movement, and it is one option for parents who are not able to find what they need for their students uh, in in the typical local district. So that is certainly something that has been growing over the past decades. and, and certainly in the area of students who are highly capable. And uh, I don't know that it, there's really an impact. It, it is something that we see. And now because there are so many options available for students, uh, including entering college early, and there are a number of programs where students may enter college early, you will actually see that some of the students who enter college early are students who've been homeschooled. And the variety of individuals who are homeschooled, uh, certainly this happens in a variety of ways. Some are quote-unquote homeschooled, although they go to their local school for hmm. extras like music and art and, and gym. Some never set foot in their local school. So there are a variety of ways that homeschooling is implemented, and it's all connected with a, a particular state or local district. Hmm. Does, it, does it matter when I choose to skip a grade? It seems like it would be easier to do when they're younger versus, you know, older, uh, I was just thinking if I had to move one of my kids ahead a grade and my youngest is 11 and um, I have a 13-year-old and a 17-year-old and then those that are in college and I think they would kill me socially if I tried to put them in another grade. 
Well, actually, that is one of the critical items that uh, appears on the Iowa Acceleration Scale. We never recommend that a student is accelerated into the same grade as an older sibling. Mm. And we broadly define sibling because many families are blended now. So it does not have to be necessarily a biological sibling. It could be like a cousin who might be living with the family. Um, So there are enough issues and enough pressures on the dynamics of a family that that is something that we do not recommend. We absolutely do not recommend that you would accelerate a student into an older grade. So, Are, are the benefits the it. same if they do it at kindergarten versus at ninth grade? Well, so uh, as long as we're not talking about yeah. going into the same grade as a sibling, yeah, the advantage, so the advantage to accelerating at kindergarten is that then you're just part of the school system, mm-hmm. right? The disadvantage is they've only been on earth for like four years, <laughs> and if right. they haven't had a good preschool experience, we typically wouldn't recommend that. Uh, we would recommend that if they've had a good preschool experience and they're ready for it and they're demonstrating that they're, you know, close to really being in shape to to master the uh, quote unquote curriculum at kindergarten, like reading and and uh, knowing some math, some arithmetic, so that they're ready to learn to learn. Then certainly that would be something that would be recommended. But always we would recommend that they go through the decision making process that gets everybody on the same page in terms of the team, and that decision making process includes having the teacher who's going to be receiving the student as well. That's Mm. really important. Yeah, that's a great idea because then there has to be a match. Right. You have to. And so basically you can look at what the child's doing. And so there aren't very many four-year-olds who are reading, but there are some four-year-olds who are reading chapter books. So you actually really need to find a place where they're going to be able to be challenged. And if as in most kindergarten classrooms, what you do is you start out learning the letters and you have somebody who's reading and reading well, then you need to find a way to keep that person challenged. Mm. Walk, walk us through. So if I'm a parent, I'm seeing that one of my children is, is gifted um, or many children or, many, or a couple of my children are gifted, but I can't, I can't discern if they are bored, but I can't discern why they're bored, and I can't necessarily, I'm not the best judge of of if they're bored from gifted or if they're bored from ADHD or something else. Um, Mm -hmm. Tell me how I go about the process of making this decision, where I get the testing, how I do this. Well, uh, this is something that would depend upon the state and some of the local uh, districts or the well, sometimes they're called regional service centers for uh, schools. Sometimes they, they group together and they have a regional service center. Start always with the teacher always with the teacher. Go to the teacher. Let's look at the information that is currently available and how that information is being used to make decisions about the child's readiness to learn something new. If they're not learning something new every day, and they do have that right, uh, then work with the teacher to figure out out how you can do this. If the teacher is amenable then to getting new information about this, then uh, work with the teacher in terms of what's available through the public school system 
or if not, then there are ways that you can get information from a private psychologist that can be used to help people understand what the needs of the child are. That's great. Good stuff. So, um, uh, Susan, if we want to get a hold of you, if some of our listeners want to reach out, do they go to accelerationinstitute.org? Is that the best place to to start looking? That's the perfect place to start looking um, because we have portals for parents, for teachers, uh, for researchers. You can see stories. We have stories on there. You can access um, a variety of resources that are available, and it is absolutely the perfect place to start looking. Beautiful. Dr. Susan Astling, thank you so much for that uh, heads up, that insight. We're not all alike. And... uh, now, you know, it, it needs to be that we're reached at our level in our way if we want to advance and, and really become the best person we can be. Go check out the website at accelerationinstitute.org and uh, just get started there. Fun stuff. We'll take a break. Come back. When we come back, Caitlin Thomas is going to give us some ideas of how you can travel to, you know, to de-stress if you're struggling with the election. Maybe it's time to take a trip. Stick with us. We'll be right back. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. Today we'll be taking on a topic uh, many don't talk about. You may have heard about it brought up before. Postpartum depression and psychosis. Joining us is Julie Nelson. She, We call her the bomb mom. Really? It's the bomb. It's the bomb. She teaches uh, classes such as applied parenting and marriage and relationship skills at Utah Valley University. If you go to her website, a spoonful of parenting.com, you can get a great uh, taste of all of her her wonderful insight and research. She's the author of two books, Parenting with Spiritual Power, Keep It Real and Grab a Plunger, 25 Tips for Surviving Parenthood. And she brings a friend with her today, Noreen Lemon, to help her with today's topic. Noreen, thanks for being with us as well. Thank you. Julie, thank you. Thank you for inviting me back. Good to see you. And we enjoyed your, I think it was sweet rolls. Mm-hmm. The cinnamon rolls last oh, time. Oh, my heavens. <laughs> On our topic of the power smells. Those, that was incredible. I hope, I hope you're spraying Windex all over your house. Oh, yeah. Okay. In fact, I saw Jeff drinking it yesterday. And then, and then people will clean up more. Yeah. Everybody's <laughs> cleaning up more because of the simple smell. So talk to us about postpartum depression, Julie. It's a, uh, I, I think it's something I don't, I mean, I could relate to depression, mm-hmm. but I've seen clients that suffer from postpartum depression and they, they, they feel like they, they don't like their child. They don't like what they're going through. And then they don't even like themselves. Yeah. Cause they think there's something wrong with them. Why don't I have this overwhelming love for my baby? Yeah. And there's a lot of hormonal changes going on after birth. And some we can attribute just to baby blues. And this is different than baby blues where for maybe a week or two, you're feeling a little bit, you know, it's hard to adjust mm-hmm. your sleep, you know, having sleep de- deprivation, oh. but this is something that's more chronic and it will last much longer than two weeks. And it gets more severe. Uh, it's much more, um, uh, violent thoughts, greater despair, um, don't want to get out of bed. Um, and you start to feel like you're not yourself at all and that there's something wrong, seriously wrong with you. Mm. Um, so we call this postpartum depression. And it's what we want to talk about today. We've And some studies, one large study to date shows that as many as one in seven, ch- uh, one in seven women suffer from postpartum, which is much higher than I think anyone yeah. would imagine. One in seven women. Um, 
That was published in the journal of um, the JAMA, the Psychiatry. And um, they recommend that all pregnant women and new mothers are screened for depression because one in seven is so high. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that should probably be part of our mental health assessment with mothers who are going through so much transitional um, body changes and mental health changes and then just lifestyle taking home this baby? What do I do with this? I mean, super overwhelming already. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we're talking about symptoms that are more along with chronic depression um, that are perhaps um, jump-started by having a baby and things like being feeling dark in a dark abyss, being alone, feeling alone, um, just wanting to sleep all the time, end your life, having severe panic attacks, feeling overwhelming despair, um, not wanting to wake up after sleep and wanting to escape somehow, and also also could be wanting to do harm to your baby. Mm-hmm. So um, one researcher found that 20% of women um, with um, postpartum had suicidal thoughts, um, dark, dark despair. And so we want to talk about this and bring it into light because so few people want to talk about this because it could be something that is um, – we know we we feel a little bit uncomfortable with could be stigmatized, and so um, I've brought my friend Noreen today to talk about her experience. Noreen Lemon, mm, yes. Noreen, thanks for being here. Thank you. Because this is like it's very personal, it's very private. Sometimes you, it's like you might even feel un- ashamed that you even had those negative thoughts. Mm-hmm. But tell us your experience. Uh, so I, prior to having my baby, I really thought that postpartum was a farce mm-hmm. <laughs> and that it wasn't a real thing. And I actually remember going to one of those labor classes mm-hmm. and we watched a video and there are all these women crying on there and boohooing about their husbands going to work. And it was so hard. And I got in the car afterwards with my husband. And I said, that was the dumbest thing I have ever seen. And um, I said, if they would just pray or something, they would just be fine. And uh, so I got a lesson pretty quickly right after I had my son. Um, I started having sleepless nights, but um, very quickly I had a sleepless night where I started to be have thoughts that for sure I was dying and there was no way I was going to live. And I had kind of decided the next day was what the next day would be like. And the next day would be ugly. And um, I would have to go to the hospital and they would tell me I was going to have so long to live, maybe two or three days. And I was I was done. And so um, I finally, after shaking and having um, just these horrible thoughts, fell asleep for about an hour. And when I woke up the next morning. My husband was laying there with the baby, and um, I said, that was a really weird night. Mm. I don't know what to do. And I thought for about five minutes I was okay, but then everything started coming back, like just this, my heart was racing, all of that. And the great thing about that was it was so extreme. I knew something was wrong. Um, yeah, so it wasn't I, subtle at no, all. It was no, no. And so I think for me, that was the blessing of it, that it was so extreme, right. so fast. And so I called the doctor's office and they immediately, st- they didn't put me on hold. They said, tell me what you're feeling like. It was a very quick because uh, very recently in the area we lived in, a mom had killed all of her children and herself. Oh. And so our response was, we've got to do something to take care of this. Yeah. 
so, is yeah. wow. And you, you're just thinking, what is going on here? Yeah, because but it feels real. The thoughts are so coming in. It was so real, so real, and such odd thoughts. Like I remember one night thinking, these little men were going to come and they were all going to kill me, and it was very real. Seemed now absurd, yeah. but during that moment, very real. Is it chemical? Is that what's happening here? Julie, is that how this goes? Is, I guess it starts with chemistry and exhaustion. Yeah, as research I looked at, up, it uh, could be genetic. Um, it also could be chemistry, hormonal imbalance. But also we've looked into many cases in women who have hurt themselves and have hurt their children perhaps. And they some of these they attribute it to PTSD, mm-hmm. um, meaning that they um, have – and I have one recent case here in Utah, in Salem, Utah, um, Emily Dykes, who she um, had her fifth child and was fine through four. And then our fifth something happened. And what they went back to find is that she had a traumatic birth and that the doctor diagnosed her with PTSD from the traumatic birth experience. Mm. And other women like that where there was something that was kind of life-threatening during the birth experience. And then it's over. You know, the baby came out fine. Mom's fine. Everyone thinks that's fine. But there's these reoccurring thoughts of death yeah. and of despair and of hopelessness. And that's the PTSD that we're talking about mm-hmm. as well. And it kind of just, I guess, you, you sink into it. And then it, you probably get a lot of support around a baby for the first week or two and then that might be right when this is starting to fester and and kick in and everyone pulls away dad needs to go back to work Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden you're left alone yeah how lonely Mm -hmm. and scary so some of this it may be also and i guess that's what they're checking to is a predisposition to depression if you already are predisposed to it you might be more likely to suffer an incident of depression. Yeah, and if they do this pre-screening with pregnant women, maybe we could target earlier what could happen and watch more close closely for these signs afterwards. I don't think mm-hmm. we're doing that as well as we could. Wow. Mm-hmm. They're not mm-hmm. necessarily going to self-correct. No, they and even if they do right. for a while, like even if they're doing great for a while, that doesn't mean it's over. Um, so if you notice things, if you... If you just go ahead and assume yeah. <laughs> and go ahead and ask. Be invasive, like yeah, exactly. you say. Ask the questions. Mm-hmm. What can I do as a spouse? So what is the husband to do? I guess he too could be invasive and make sure mm-hmm. that we're doing okay mentally, pick up the game more. I mean, there's always sometimes that battle of you've got the equipment, but I've got the will. And mm-hmm. so my, what do my I do? husband was absolutely amazing. And I had the greatest support system. So the ladies that don't, um, I can't even imagine. Mm. Um, but he was he was my hero during that time. Um, but one of the things that helped me the most was to think sometimes, ladies, you need to think I'm not getting help for me. I'm getting help for my husband. I'm getting help for my children. Um, the trauma that is caused by a parent that has a mental illness, even through postpartum and doesn't get help, it is life. It, it can last forever mm. with those kids. And so I say, if you think I'm not going to get help because I can do it, um, think about your kids and think about your husband. That's big. And it's a gift to them that you get help and you do something about it. Yeah, that's a big and deal. And recognize the early signs before mm-hmm. it gets so tailspinning that you can't do anything more and you're that exactly. black hole. And then as a spouse, you know you should know your spouse well enough. And, and just ask. Get do help something. right away. Yeah, yeah, do something then. Don't wait. And for those of us who are alone, perhaps single parents or for someone um, that just needs to get help, the, the three um, places that I would love to refer you to is that um, the emilyeffect.org, it's org, and then there's preventingsuicide.lds.org, 
And then if anyone, anywhere, it's a national hotline, can call the suicide hotline. If you have any of those thoughts, then call 800-273-TALK or 800-273-8255. Don't mess with it. Mm-mm. It's already hard enough. Mm-hmm. Somebody's got to raise this child. Yes. <laughs> oh, well, well done. Appreciate you, Noreen. Thanks for Thank giving us insight into your experience. Thank you so much. It's a big deal. And again, Julie, you're the bomb. Thanks. Thanks the so bomb, much, Matt. Mom. Find out more about Julie at her website, a spoonful of parenting.com. We'll take a break, come back, wrap up the third hour of the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be back. <laughs> 